Well, it's so good to see everybody. Happy Sunday, Resurrection Day. It's a little dreary, I know, and we get full effect of that in our view here, but it's so just great to be together on a day like today. I said to somebody earlier, if you're new or visiting with us, we're just so thrilled that you're with us this morning. And if you're brave, I always say I would be a little passive my first time visiting a community, but if you're brave and you want to fill out a connection card, there is a digital connection card at the back of the room, and you can just fill out your details. And then what we do is we make a small donation to our friends at Mission Services here in the city, and they just do great work. And so we love supporting them and just saying thank you for being with us. So it's good. Everybody doing okay? Okay, a few announcements off the top. Sometimes we do them at the end, but I felt like this ties in. There's some exciting things coming up in the month of February because February can be kind of dreary and dull. And I know we try and put Valentine's Day in there to kind of make everybody feel better. Valentine's Day, by the way, is my daughter, my 11-year-old daughter, her favorite like holiday, like bigger than Christmas is Valentine's Day for her. So we try and make it big. And she bakes, like this is just for free, every day every day and it's killing me because it's the greatest thing ever but you know it's the worst thing ever you know what i'm talking about and so she baked this cake yesterday and i'm like dude i can't eat this because for six days in a row i've been eating cake and cookies and it's just that's my life it's all good but we're excited about february a couple things coming up one is we've really wrestled with what do we do on a weekend like family day weekend Uh, one of the things i think that makes us unique is we take some time throughout the year to do unique things Um, one we take sabbath a lot on long weekends and then two we have a core value around here of the table and eating together and we really like getting everybody together and eating meals together in the name of jesus that was actually the pre-christendom form of worship so when you pick your bible up and you read ephesians or philippians or romans those would have been passed around in house churches where the meal would have been central and then they would have read text in scripture and had a symposium-like thing that they would do after the meal. And so we've always said that one of the critical ways of worshiping together is having a meal together. So what we're going to do in, this is going to be fun. So I put this before a a few people and um, there's some great people helping with our hospitality team. We just got the ball rolling with our team. And what we're going to do is on family day weekend, if you're in town, Sunday, February 16th, we're going to do a family feast. We're not going to have a gathering in the morning. We're going to have a a feast at night, but here's what we're going to do. This is going to be amazing if you participate. We're going to get you to sign up. And on Sunday morning, that Sunday morning, you are going to get an email back to you, to your email because you registered, telling you where that evening you're going to go for dinner at 5 p.m. And so we're going to have about four or five different host homes. And if you're brave enough to join in, you just sign up and then we'll let you know that morning. All you got to do is bring something for a potluck. The church and the host home will offer drinks and dessert. And it's just going to be like an hour and a half, couple hours of just eating together and joining in. And don't be scared. It's going to be really good. All of the host homes are amazing. And this may give some of you an opportunity because of work schedules and stuff during the week where you don't have a ton of time to get into an actual uh, Praxis community, this may be an opportunity to do that. Sound like fun? Some of you are like, that doesn't sound like fun at all. Stay home, go away for the weekend. But uh, again, as a church, we just really feel like we are more than just songs and sermons, that one of the thumbprints on us as a community is the table. So 
Everything will be up this week for Family Feast. Sign up. We'll get you connected with some great people and just help you have an awesome evening that evening. In the host homes, we hope to have like a prayer and a little bit of a reflection and it'll be great for each host home as we eat together. So it's going to be fun. I'm so excited about that. The other thing is this. Pat um, brought us up to speed last week for coldest night of the year. It's coming really quickly. So we blasted the link out this week on social media. We want you to join our team for coldest night of the year. We have a goal of 20 $1,200. It's going down on February 22nd, and it's going to be a great time. We're going to walk together. This is a kid-friendly walk, raising money for our friends at Mission Services, and we're just going to have a great time. So join our team online, blast out the link to friends and family, get them to support you, and we're going to hit our $1,200 goal for Mission Services. They just do a great work, and it's a blast. There's lots of fun stuff after, including a meal and just some fun activities, and we hope you can join our team for that. And then the final thing in February that we're looking at, and this has kind of come quick, it's come quicker than, uh, you know, just with the season and the year and the way it goes, is on Ash Wednesday, we said this at the beginning in, in Advent when we were talking about the church calendar, we want to take some of these moments and celebrate the church calendar together. And Ash Wednesday is this uh, day in which Lent or the season of Lenten starts this 40-day journey to Easter. And Ash Wednesday has always been a very reflective time in prayer and worship. And so what we want to do, and we don't have a venue yet, we'll let you know in the next week or so, we want to have as a church family a worship and prayer evening on Ash Wednesday, and we want to invite your entire family to come. Ideally, we'd like to do it in this room. We'll see how that all goes. And so hopefully you can join us on Ash Wednesday. It's February the 26th. Here's my thought. I haven't even talked to anybody about this, but my thought is, I know it's a little counterintuitive, but maybe we could do dinner with everybody that you come and there's dinner available, maybe like tacos or something. Would anybody be into that? I know that's counterintuitive to Lent because Lent is like fasting, but I thought, what if we come at 6 p.m., we eat together, and then uh, all in here we have a time of worship and prayer together if we can get this venue. If not, we'll find another venue. Sound like a plan? So we're going to do dinner. I, I'm not very authoritative that way. But we're going to do dinner. Let's do dinner on that night, okay? We barely do anything midweek as far as outside of our community. So we really encourage you to come be a part of this. And I actually think, here's what I think. Um, the way of Jesus, in many ways, it's taught. Yes, it's taught. But for our kids, it's very much caught. I can push Bible stuff on my kids all the time, and I kind of do. I'm that guy reading through the scriptures with my oldest right now and just trying to help them. But I also know that things like worshiping together, our kids catch, it's something they catch. The kingdom can be caught too, you know what I'm saying? And so I actually think it'll be great to have our little ones in with us for that hour where we pray and we worship together and we'll do some fun things uh, with that and just reflecting on this time of year. So it's gonna be good and I'm excited about these days ahead. That's February. February doesn't need to be boring, right? It's a good month, it's good. All right, with all of that said, and I know this is a little out of the ordinary, but let's start by looking, let's start the teaching today by looking at a recent survey done on the church in Canada. Sound like a plan? You can go if you want. We'll all probably judge you if you leave, but it's all good. Now, I know, because I'm like this, that it is easy to skeptically let statistics go by when we hear of a recent survey or study that's done. You know, I, I recently heard someone say that 85% of all statistics are untrue. 
Right, 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 okay, you're with me. I was worried that nobody would laugh and I'd just be sitting up here and none of you would just go over your heads, but that was supposed to be funny. But honestly, when legitimate work is done on spirituality in Canada, it actually gets my attention and I tend to take it seriously. Mainly because there are, if you know, if you follow this stuff, there are a ton of different studies done with our friends south of the border all the time. Pew Research is always doing stuff on them all the time. But there is actually, I would say, little credible study done on the spiritual climate in Canada. So when this kind of research is done for me, I actually tend to sit up and listen a little bit uh, because it's not often that we get credible stuff in our hands. So there's this group called the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. They're a, a legitimate group, and they use polls every five or six years to measure church and faith trends in our country. This is only every five or six years that they do this. So recently in August, they used a polling company called Maru, and they served just over 5,000 Canadians, and all of these people were over the age of 18. And if you, some of you may even read Faith Today, their, their kind of magazine publication, they released the findings of this study last August. They re released the findings this January. Happy New Year. Okay, so buckle up. Can we all buckle up? Because there have been like massive, massive shifts the last couple of decades in our country. So much so that I think the article was called Not Christian Anymore, if you just, a little attention-grabbing thing. I don't know if we can throw it up, Marco. This is kind of the cover page of this, this publication. Now, you'll notice in a couple seconds, I'm actually going to show you graphs on a Sunday morning. You're welcome. Thanks for coming. It's good. But you'll notice in some of the polling that researchers are going to use the age of 12 as a key point in determining people's lives and some of the questions that they pose. Now they chose, it's funny, they chose the age 12 because that's just before many parents give up trying, right, to get their kids to go to church on Sunday. And so it kind of helps as a reference point in some of the questions that they asked. Two major things that they looked at. One religious identity. Here's what they found. They found that half of Canada's population say that they're now either agnostic or something similar. And they found that half the Canadians who went to church as a 12-year-old eventually switched to those agnostic categories. We actually have uh, put together, took some of the clippings from it. So this is some of the graphing that they give on religious identity. So that first one there, they talk about Canadians reporting some kind of Christian religious affiliation. Today, that's about 43%, but back when people were 12, that was close to 75%. Now, Canadians who report as, you'll see there, as AASN, so this is atheists, agnostics, and spiritual nuns. Um, back when they were 12, there was 21% of people that identified with this group, but to, today it's about half of Canadians identify as atheists, people who don't believe in God, agnostics, kind of the pluralistic view, or spiritual nuns. Then they looked at Canadians who identified as Christian at the age of 12. And here you can see the different generations from the silent generations, which was my grandparents, to my parents and the boomers. I'm a Gen Y on this list. I just made it as a millennial in this list and so on. And you see, I mean, there's some pretty high numbers of people who identified at 12, year old, uh, 12 years old as Christians. Like, 
as Christian, my grandparents in this age, uh, 83% of them kind of reference themselves as that. So that there's shifts, things are changing when it comes to identity, but it's, there's also changing, it's also changing dramatically when it comes to religious gathering attendance. Next graph. Aren't you glad you came? This is, this is just so, so uplifting, eh? So as for current attendance at religious services, and this is not just Jesus followers or Christians, this is all religious services, 11, this is the key number, 11% of Canadians now attend at least weekly religious gatherings, not just Christian. So to put that in perspective, 11% guys, in the 40s, it was just under 70%. Then they did another study in the 90s, 1996, so 24 years ago, and that number went from 67%, just under 70%, to 30%. So still in the 90s, a third of people gathered regularly, weekly, and now in our current moment, it is 11%. What a great time to plant a church, eh? <laughs> no, but nobody's going to church. Nobody in our country is gathering for religious ceremony. Uh, they pulled people remembering their weekly attendance back at age 12. Even for my generation, Gen Y, it was 26%. Now it's 11. Put these, things to, these two things beside each other. So remembering a weekly attendance at age 12 beside actual weekly attendance today, and just look at the numbers. So my grandparents' generation, 62% remember at 12 gathering in some form of religious gathering, now it's 19%. I know we can be skeptical with statistics, but this is, this is drastic. There's a lot going on here. Among Canadians who attend a monthly at age 12, this is how many now attend less often. Almost 80% look back and go, when I gathered in a religious service when I was 12 years old, now close to 80% do not. Welcome. Now, it's, it's so, it should be sobering a bit, right? Here's the thing. A bunch of years ago, I would have felt the weight of hearing something like this. Even a couple weeks ago, I was amongst a bunch of young pastors at an event, and there was a guy who was doing a great job, and he was sharing very much the same sort of statistics about the decline in the Canadian church. And when I hear these things, 10 years ago, I would have... I probably would have grabbed my metaphorical torch and declared that we're going to change this. That, you know, we're going to change, we're going to change the world. And this in no way is meant to be a downer. But I'm not sure if I, please hear what I'm not saying, but I'm not sure if I believe that as much anymore. I'm not sure you or I bear all the responsibility of somehow changing these statistics on our own as we read them. 10 years ago, I would have felt it. I would have been like, part of me is at three on the Enneagram would have been jacked up. Like, how are we gonna do this? How are we gonna change these statistics? And don't get me wrong, I believe that the church can change the world. But after a few years under my belt and a little bit of wisdom along the way, yes, there are gray hairs sprouting even in the wicked beard I'm growing right now. My kids pointed out. I see that when we say things like we're gonna change the world, it's probably different than what we often mean. Can I really on my own, can we on our own really change these stats? I know what I can do. I can be faithful, right? I can give my life to Jesus. I can raise my kids in the way of Jesus. I can lead a church in the way of Jesus. 
but to bear the burden that I'm somehow going to do this on my own. This is just a side note. It's just unnecessary. I don't think we need to freak out. Now, in other ways, this research is intense, and it probably should be. In other ways, it's not surprising for many of us that sit here. I think many of us, at some level, we really feel this. We are in the minority, especially those of you in this room that are really committed to like gathering with the church, this freakish thing of gathering with the church weekly. Just want to let you know you are in the minority, right? And there's absolutely no guilt here. But across the board, I would say even people who in the past, and all these numbers show this, that have been faithful to the church, that, that faithfulness has just waned a lot. I would say faithfulness in Canada to a gathered people has very much eroded. And it's not just across, it's not just in our denomination or particular denominations, it's in every denomination and every style of church around. And so one of the questions, yo, you okay? Sounds kind of down, I know, buzzkill. Came to church, pastor dude who has a beard gave us a bit of a buzzkill. One of the things we need to, we're gonna get to the text because it all connects together. <coughs> Why has this happened? I know that all sorts of people have all sorts of reasons and assertions as to why there's been this drastic decline, especially in the last 25 years. Attractional church people will look at this and say that the church has over the years become irrelevant and kind of out of touch, that our church services have become boring, and you know this study is a byproduct of that. And when it comes down to it, really, what are you going to choose? What are we going to choose? Brunch mosas or church on Sunday? Guys, brunch mosas win every time. You with me? Youth sports or church? Come on. We can't compete with youth sports, right? So one of the things is that there's even a feeling and a need, and even some feel like a resurgence in this attractional camp to have highly attractional church services. This is especially apparent in some really attractional church planting networks. The thought is we're losing when you look at the stats, so we got to get people, and the way we got to get people is we've got to be interesting, right? And can I just say, I'm all for being interesting. Anybody with me? I think being interesting is probably a pretty good thing. But I'll just say that the, <laughs> the growing skeptic in me, Lord, help me and my unbelief. Right now, help me, God. The growing skeptic within me wonders at times if Christian entertainment on Sunday mornings is really going to change just what we saw right here. Because the tough thing for the church is that, can I just break it to you? You can go anywhere and be entertained way better, if we're just honest. Can I be honest? Uh, it's just going to be better than the church. No matter how good your church thinks it is, the entertainment on the outside is better. Like in a couple of weeks, I'm going to Jim Gaffigan. Anybody? Yeah. Christmas gift. He's coming to London. I didn't even know. Somebody gave it to me as a Christmas gift. Going to Centennial Hall. Going to watch Jim Gaffigan. Guys, we can't beat Jim Gaffigan. Right? Like, I know I'm super funny, right? I'm really great. No, right? Exactly. Not at all. We cannot be Jim Gaffigan. Nor, nor the next and best show that comes to town. We can't out-entertain like that. And so we got to just think through this. Cultural critics will look at this kind of data and they'll say things like, well, this decline has happened because things have changed. Right? We're autonomous now. We're individuals we don't need institutions and religion. Why would you need to go to church when you have Facebook, right? You know, this social media platform that makes me think I went to church even when I didn't. 
Drop the mic right there, right? That's what it does. It makes you think your place is that you're actually not. Anyways, we can talk about that later. Or you have Calvinists who will look at this data and say that these stats don't really matter because the decline in numbers shows that people weren't really Christians anyways. But I digress. It's a good morning. Why the decline? All sorts of people poke at this and say all sorts of things. You know, a few years ago, Heather and I had this miracle moment in our lives where we were in Sarnia with her folks. Her folks uh, live in Sarnia, and we were there for a weekend, a long weekend in the summer, and we went out together alone for dinner and drinks. It was like heaven on earth. And so Heather's folks took care of the kids, and we went out for dinner, and went to a place after, and the guy who was serving us our drinks on that evening was actually a family friend of ours that I actually grew up with. He's my age, and I hadn't seen him in years, and all of a sudden, he's this guy serving us. It was like, you know, kind of those weird moments where you distance yourself from somebody, you're not really in relationship with somebody. This was a guy, by the way, who, like, our families vacationed together, grew up in the same church, had the same friends, and had very much the same experiences growing up. And here he was, five or six years later after seeing him, and he was serving us. And over time and along the way, I had heard that he wasn't participating in the Jesus community anymore, and there's certain reasons for that, and it is what it is. It was just interesting. On the way home, Heather and I had a conversation, kind of like what we're posing here. Why? Like this guy, had exactly the same experience as me. Went to church, had the same friends, and we just ended up going dramatically different directions. And there's no, there's no condemnation or shame there at all. It's just kind of the way it is. And just like the study here, there could be a ton of reasons, but here's what I think. I think this guy knew what churches do, and please don't take offense to this. I don't think anybody will take offense to this, but I think he knew what churches do, and he knew what churchy people do. He knew what a church service looked like inside and out. He knew what Christians believed for the most part. He had been to the camps and the conventions and the overnighters and everything that I had experienced. He knew all of that quote-unquote evangelical kind of stuff. But as I think about his life, and this is just my assertion, did he know what it means to be a disciple? Like, you can have all sorts of experiences when you're 12. I think this is legitimate data here. But I think one of the things we're staring at in the face right now as a church in a post-Christian kind of woke world is, like, do people even know what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what discipleship actually means? Do we know in our bones what it looks like and what it means for us to follow Jesus? And this is what I've been thinking about. You know, we have the numbers here, but do we really understand in our mind and in our hearts discipleship in the kingdom of God. So with all that said, it's a lot. That was a lot of things said. A lot of funnies in there too. I spent a lot of time working on that this week. Thank you for laughing. I appreciate it. <laughs> with all that said, we're in a season right now called Epiphany in the church calendar. And we're following the church calendar. Today is actually the third Sunday of Epiphany. Epiphany, if you haven't been around, is the season in the church calendar where we actually celebrate the realization of Jesus coming to us and what that means for us. And here's the thing with today's text. You're like, enough of the cultural analysis. Okay, with today's text, when we talk about some of the decline we've seen in the Canadian church and why, I think we see actually right here in the life and teachings of Jesus that Jesus may just be onto something. 
that a lot of people who thought they were Christians or were kind of cultural evangelicals maybe have missed exactly what Jesus talks about here. And so this is what we're going to read. What we're going to read here is probably, and I don't want to oversell it, but I think is the most foundational thing in what it means to be a Christian, the kingdom of God and discipleship. Have I got your attention? You good? All right. If you have a Bible, let's open up to Matthew chapter 4. I'll give you a second to open up to Matthew chapter 4, because I think this leads us now into what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew says of Jesus, verse 12, if you look down, he says, when Jesus heard that John, this is John the Baptist, had been put into prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. And this is the prophecy. I think this is Isaiah 9. Land of Zebulon and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned from that time on. Jesus began to preach, and he preached this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Verse 18, as Jesus was walking then beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. One was named Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, really great name. Suggest you naming your kids that if you ever need to do that, or Drew, it's also good, the abbreviation. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come and follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets, and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, and they were preparing their nets. And Jesus called them, and immediately, they left in their boat, and their, fa and their father, they left him, and they followed Jesus. So, this is the text for today. This is in the lectionary. This is what we are encouraged to focus on in the church calendar. And here, Jesus is at the beginning of his ministry. For 30 years, it's crazy to think he lived a pretty ordinary life in obscurity, in the backwoods. Think of a town or a village in the backwoods. This is where he lived. And he probably lived what we think as a stonemason. I know some people say carpenter, but wood was really expensive in the ancient world and it wasn't even really a thing. They used their hands with stone. And this is what Jesus would have given his life to for 30 freaking years. Just the ordinary, no book, no book sales, no Twitter account, no Instagram, just your average guy kind of living under the radar. And the, we know the forerunner, his name is John the Baptist, this Elijah-like figure that Israel was anticipating had come to prepare the way for Jesus. And even here, you hear words like Zebulon and Naphtali. Did you hear that? Because Matthew, the writer of this gospel, is actually writing to a primarily Jewish audience. And these were images for them of the tribes of Israel. It would have made sense for them. Along with right in the middle of it, what we just read, a prophecy from Isaiah, which would have reminded the audience reading this, that this character named Jesus of Nazareth was Israel's Messiah. I know we're not waiting on the edge of our seat, but all the language right there, that's what this is doing. And what does he do? He comes telling people what? The kingdom of God has come near. This is what he says. His message, what? What for us, you know, in the 21st century? The what? The kingdom of God 
has come near. Now, Epiphany is actually the season that reminds us that the kingdom of God has drawn near. And one of the things I think about is how could it be that there's been a massive decline in the North American church in evangelicalism or Christianity or whatever you want to call it. And I wonder, because many people, maybe that decline has happened because many people do not have a grip on this thing called the kingdom of God. I mean, I'm a pretty nice guy, but I would say this. If we don't have a grip on the kingdom of God and understanding in our minds and our hearts, it's a pretty big problem, right? Like I was thinking yesterday, it's like trying to play hockey, because that's just my world, and not understanding that when the puck goes in the net, that is how you score a goal. That's a picture of what it's like to try and follow Jesus without understanding this thing called the kingdom of God. You want to know what Jesus talked about the most? How to be saved? Nope. How to get to heaven when you die? No. How to live a really great life and be an influencer? Sorry, guys. Nope. How to live a blessed life? Because God has a plan for you to prosper you and give you power to do all things through Christ who strengthens you? I know you probably read that on Facebook this week, but no. Now, some of these things may be true in and of themselves here. But the thing that Jesus talked about the most was this thing, the kingdom of God. A guy named Gordon Fee, an old scholar, he pretty much is very audacious when he says this. He says, you cannot know anything about Jesus, anything, if you miss the kingdom of God. I love what he says. You, and he, this is like an old guy, by the way. I think he's like in his 80s at this point. You are a zero on Jesus if you don't understand this term. That's like throwdown language. I love it. He says this, I'm sorry to say it, that strongly, but this is the great failure of evangelical Christianity. We have had Jesus without the kingdom of God and therefore have literally done Jesus in. Man. Now, it's hard uh, thousands and thousands of years later, and it can be tough, because here's the thing. Jesus actually never directly explains the kingdom of God. He never gives a definition for it, And there's no recording in the Gospels of him giving a definition because somebody came up to him and asked him, what is this thing called the kingdom of God? So this has created some problems for us along the way, years and years later trying to figure this out. Some think that the kingdom of God is this place where you go when you die, you know, the evangelical kind of heaven where I go away. Others see, and this would be more probably in our terms for a lot of people, others see the kingdom of God as ethics, Right? So Jesus called a social action with little or no connection to the church is kind of this thing that's called the kingdom of God. We're going to make our neighborhoods better. That's the kingdom of God. There's great guys, great guys like George Ladd and the great late Dallas Willard who say that the kingdom of God is God's rule or reign. And I think there's absolute truth in there. The problem is, is that there was, in the time of Jesus, when he's writing this, Matthew is writing this, and when Jesus is saying this, The problem for us is is that there was a general assumption for those people, the audience in Jesus' day, and they knew what the kingdom of God was. There was just an assumption on their end that they, if you were an Israelite and there was kingdom language, you would have picked it up like we don't today. I know we have, it's Harry and Meghan, right, moving to Canada, and we'll just embrace them as our royals or whatever. But the whole idea of a kingdom for us outside of Game of Thrones for some of you guys, which I've not seen an episode, it's a little lost for us. But for a first century Jew, hearing now that the kingdom of God is at hand is a reminder, one, 
that God's plan A was that he would be king and rule from the garden in creation to Israel up to this guy named Samuel who was a prophet. The whole hope was theocracy, that God would be the king of his people. We know that turns on its head. God says, don't cry out for a king. You do not want a human king, trust me. I'm a good king, you don't want a human king. They call on a human king and the whole story begins to unravel because the human kings, they ruled God's kingdom and they were really bad in doing this and turned Israel on its head. And now what we read in Jesus is plan A revised. That in Jesus, God once again rules through this Messiah and his kingdom is coming. And so one of the things that Jesus did is he came to inaugurate the kingdom kingdom of God. And the Bible actually tells us that one day, every square inch of this world, the world, the city, the place that you and I inhabit, every square inch of this place will be redeemed and it'll be reshaped as the kingdom of God. God is not giving up on our city. He's not giving up on our country. He's not giving up on our planet. So the kingdom of God is all around us, all around us, but it's not fully here. It's all, it's bursting. New creation is bursting forth. When we were singing these songs together this morning, I just felt like, man, the kingdom of God is at hand, and then it's not fully here. There's still an adversary. There's still gnarly things in our world. There's still injustice and pain and country music, right? You get the point. So I've come across one of the best definitions, I think, uh, of the kingdom. There's tons of definitions. Jesus didn't give a definition. Heather would have hated that, but she's in kids, the country music poke, but I can do it because she's not here. Sorry, you country music fans. Just is what it is. But I'll just say, I'll just say the top, you know how Spotify does the top played songs in your house? There was a country song in our house that was the top played song. Old Town Road, anybody? That's not country, no. That's not country. Anyways, my kids play that song. That's really bad advice, actually, parenting advice. Tons of definitions around the kingdom. This is one by a guy named Patrick Schreiner, who I think does a really good job at helping us understand what Jesus has come to inaugurate as we read in Mark 4, Matthew 4. The kingdom is the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. The kingdom is the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. So more than just, and I'm, I'm with Dallas Willard. I love, I'm a huge Dallas Willard fan. More than just sovereignty or God's rule, that's a huge part of it, the kingdom is God's rule over God's people in God's place. In other words, and you know this, you read a novel or you study a kingdom, a kingdom always has a king or a ruler, it always has citizens, and it always has space, a space and place. Shriner would go on, he'd say things like, he'd say something like this, kings rule over places and people, power is empty without people in place, place also affects people and people affect place, power is in places and places themselves yield power, boom. And so these three things work together, power, the king's power, the king's people, the citizens of the kingdom, which are you and I, and the king's place, which is not some far off never, never land, but is right here in the material world that we live. At any rate, the emphasis of Jesus, I just wanna let you know, was not just kind of escaping, but was the kingdom of God. Yet many, and this is why I think we've seen a huge decline in people even caring about what we're talking about this morning, is because over the years in our cultural context, we emphasize things like morality, or getting people into heaven, over any understanding of the kingdom of God. 
And the rat, if we do that, we've missed the plot line, and you're going to go from a lot of people saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, over the years to all sorts of things impeding our moment. And yet, Epiphany reminds us that we are called into a kingdom. Well, I've watched over the years the slow boredom that people have with the church. I actually think what Jesus is saying here and proclaiming, what he's proclaiming is absolutely revolutionary. Well, there's this kind of been this slow lull over time into brunch moses. What Jesus is saying here is on the edge of your seat kind of stuff. We got to catch it. So Jesus goes from this audacious call in the text here for people to repent for the kingdom of God is near. And then he goes up to the Sea of Galilee near his hometown and he goes to a bunch of fishermen and he has this claim. He says this, come and follow me. Come and follow me. Now you read it and you're like, man, it would take a lot for me to give up my lucrative because it was. These fishermen were making large amounts of money in their lucrative business in that day. It would take a lot for me to just kind of lay down my life and just pick up and follow somebody. But I wonder, not only the decline we're seeing kind of in the Canadian context arriving from this posture of not understanding the kingdom at all, have we understood what it means to actually follow Jesus? Have we understood what this whole thing is about? So we have programs, and we have small groups over the years, and boys and girls clubs. I think the boys and girls club that I was in was called Crusaders. Isn't that horrible? Crusaders. Anyways, that's for another time. That's insane. We had youth groups, and camps, and conventions, and this thing called Afterglow, which was legit the fellowship time, like the connect and food time after our Sunday evening services in the church that I grew up in. Now think about it for a second. Afterglow. I'll leave that right there. A few of you will get it right now. In a couple minutes, some of you will start laughing. We'll let you laugh out loud as I continue to talk, okay? You're like, what, what, what did you, what? I know, I'm in therapy. It's all good. It's all good. Just to remind you, with amongst all of that stuff, that this thing, this whole thing is about being disciples of Jesus. The Greek word here, and this is why this text is so beautiful, the Greek word is mathetes, The better translation of the word in our moment in time than disciple in English is probably this word apprentice. This is what it means, apprentice. We can think about this in our own time. Think about someone doing a plumbing apprenticeship. Certainly they'll take time in class to learn theory about plumbing, but then they'll spend significant time in apprenticeship under another plumber. They learn how to do what they do. They follow them around. They work and do what the plumber does. I'm sure plumbers crack and all, right? And as an apprentice, it's more than just something you do, actually. The language in the New Testament is that an apprentice or a disciple is actually something that you are. It's a noun. It's actually an identity put over us as those who would proclaim and follow Jesus with our lives. And so here's what people often miss. Discipleship or apprenticeship in the first century was not mutually exclusive to Jesus. Every Jewish rabbi in that day would have had disciples. Some of us now in the West think discipleship was a Jesus thing. There were multiple, multiple scholars and rabbis that would live in that day where they would literally have understudies under them. All Jewish boys would attend the first level of education in their local synagogue, something called Bet Sefer, There they would learn by memory the first five books of the Bible, what we know as the Torah. Every Jewish boy would go to this, and this is what they would be engaged in. By the age of 10, the brightest and 
best students of that group would move to the next level called Bet Talmud, or something we know as the House of Learning. It's here where students would learn and put to memory the whole freaking entire Old Testament. And some of you are like, you're thinking back to your Sunday school days and learning one verse a week. These kids would be able to spew back orally the entire Old Testament. Then, the next step was that those who didn't have a strong desire for learning and kind of this ability to show themselves at the top would go back to their family trade, just like these fishermen here that Jesus called. And those who would remain would go on to the next level called Bet Midrash. It was in Bet Midrash where students would actually apply to become a disciple or an apprentice of a rabbi, a sage, a, a well-known rabbi in that culture. The student would come up to the rabbi and present himself to a well-known rabbi, and he'd simply ask to be one of his disciples. The rabbi, they thought, in return, would ask back a bunch of questions about life and teachings and things in the Torah, uh, as they were kind of, this rabbi was looking for a bright understudy. And eventually, the rabbi, when he found a pro an appropriate understudy, would say this to him, come and follow me. Come and follow me. This is not exclusive to Jesus. This, in their culture, was the way in which the whole world was shaped. And so to become a rabbi, or sorry, to become a disciple of a rabbi in the first century meant that you would give up your entire life. You'd give up everything to follow the rabbi. Where the rabbi went, the disciple would go. What the rabbi taught, the disciple would learn. This style of learning was not just in a classroom, it was in all of life. This type of leadership emphasis everything, walking and following the rabbi everywhere. It's actually said that after a long day walking the dirty roads of Palestine, following in the footsteps of the sage, that the disciple would be covered in the dust of his rabbi. This is what it actually means to be a disciple. Your entire life is shaped by your rabbi. You take on his yoke, his teachings, in the first century, a yoke was not like an egg. It was a, an instrument that would put two oxen together and they would, it would draw them together into a particular purpose to plow fields, this thing that would go around their necks. And the picture is that we now take on the yoke of Jesus. We yoke up with him and we sink to him because he's the great rabbi and we partner with him in this thing. And so here's what I think. Um, this is just me. This is not gospel truth. But maybe the dwindling numbers have resulted in our country because we haven't given people the real thing. Can I just be honest? That's what I feel. More than just fire insurance and avoiding hell, right? Jesus' call is to follow him with our entire lives. And of course the numbers are concerning. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. But I actually right now don't feel the weight of the world on my shoulders. I think we go about our business as a community of pointing to the kingdom and to Jesus and what this means. And we continue to do what we do in cultivating a culture here of discipleship more than entertainment. I think I was reading some of Tozer last night and he said this and it's just stuck with me. A church that can't worship must be entertained. As I read that last night, I thought, man, a church that can't worship, they, they have to be, they, you have to be entertained, right? To hold this whole thing together. What if we showed the world what discipleship actually is? Do we get the kingdom? Do we get discipleship? And I actually think, as it all kind of comes together, Epiphany reminds us that these things are the central things. The kingdom of God is near. 
And Jesus is calling you and I with our entire lives. Um, This is serious business. And I wonder over the years, have we really been serious about this call? You with me? Now, to close. Um, I had this idea in my head (laughs) that to be illustrative this morning, I would have you get out of your seats, come up to the front, and I would just like cover you in dust as a sign of like you being covered in the dust of your rabbi, Jesus. And I had this like brewing in my head all week, how do we do this? Like sprinkling people in like pixie dust or something. Um, I'm joking, by the way. And then I realized we actually want people to come back. Like the numbers are declining, so we probably want (laughs) people to like, you know, we want people to come back. And so I let that go after a couple of days of trying to figure out how we're going to do it. But this is the call this morning. As we stand in a moment after I pray, and we open up the tables, the tables are open to come and receive the bread and the cup. Uh, Everything we've read in the Gospels and everything we've seen going on in our cultural moment, this is a call to follow Jesus as an apprentice, to come into his way, to follow him in his teachings. And it's actually a call to give your life, whether this is the first time that you've heard this, or like me, I grew up in this thing. Three days later, I, was, I didn't raise from the dead after I was born, but I was on the front pew and I haven't left. So I know for some of you that have been around this thing for a while, I know. But some of you like me have to come to this again and look in the face of Jesus and recommit myself to this call to be followers of him. The call this morning is that you'd be covered in the dust of your rabbi. That when we look at your life and my life, and what epiphany means for us, it'd be like, wow, that's a life marked by somebody who follows Jesus. Into the narrow road, into this road that isn't easy, it's actually harder. It's a whole way of life that calls us to lay everything down. And I call us to be covered in the dust of our rabbi. So Jesus, we come before you. You're the great king, you're the great teacher. I pray that our worship this morning would just would just be for you, that there'd be a sense and moment here as we kind of come to the tables and as we've kind of looked at the crux of all this research and all the things that kind of our culture is saying, I pray that you would mark us as disciples of you. As we come to the table, may we feel it. May we taste you, your presence, your goodness. Change us so in return, the world could be changed. And use this community in the four corners of this city, to be love and light, we pray. Jesus' name, Jesus' name.